Technology is working for me today. Praise God. <laughs> Let's go ahead and open in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, we recognize that in it, we draw near to your very heart. What a privilege, Father. What a gift. Would you press upon our minds and upon our hearts the gravity of this incredible gift? And as we come to study it together, would you humble us and open us up to the guiding of your spirit? And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The human body truly is one of the most amazing and resilient creations of God. Just look at how a person can survive several weeks on little to no food, just as Christ did in his humanity during his 40-day temptation in the wilderness. The human body can endure countless physical traumas, such as the Apostle Paul suffered, being stoned, beaten with rods three different times, receiving 39 lashes from a whip on five different occasions and more, as he recounts for us in 2 Corinthians 11. However, there is one way in which the human body is not very resilient, and that is when it comes to our need for water. See, according to most experts, a person can usually live no more than three days without water, and in the harshest environments, even less than that. For example, a person trapped in a dry, arid desert with no water will begin to feel the effects of dehydration almost immediately. First, extreme thirst kicks in. As their body clings to every bit of moisture it has, they sweat less, causing their body temperature to rise. And from here, things go from bad to worse very quickly as lack of water and rising body temperature begins to cause organ damage. And from here, an agonizing death will soon follow if they don't get water. We find a similar circumstance to this in Exodus chapter 17. So shortly after following Moses out of Egypt, the Israelites found themselves in this exact type of environment. As they gradually made their way out of the wilderness of sin, they came to camp at a place called Rephidim. Now this harsh desert place was located on, it would now be modern day Egypt, on the south side of that little finger of land which connects it to Saudi Arabia. And here, the Israelites faced the cruel danger of dehydration. However, as we go on to study our narrative today in Exodus 17, we will see that the greatest danger facing these people was spiritual dehydration. You see, knowing that God sovereignly controlled the events of the Exodus right down to the very last detail, including the miracles like the parting of the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, the log thrown into those bitter waters at Marah to make them become sweet, Knowing that, can we really think that just a few months into their journey away from Egypt, God somehow forgot that his people, whom he designed and created, required water? And that the, the wilderness to which he led them, which he also created, was waterless? Somehow I doubt that. So why then? Why did God lead his people in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night right into the heart of this waterless wilderness where he, being the creator of all, would have known they could have lasted no more than three days? Was it just to be cruel? No, God is all loving. 
Was it just a science experiment to see how resilient and resourceful these people could be? No, God is already all-knowing. Or is it possible that this was God's sovereignly controlled means of exposing the spiritual dehydration, the unbelief which pervaded the entire camp? I would argue that not not only is that exactly what we have going on here in these verses, but through the waters we are going to see him provide, God would bring to the surface an incredible truth about his grace and his sacrificial love. And this truth, though first revealed floating on the waters of Meribah more than 3,000 years ago, echoes across the centuries and speaks directly to you and me all these years later. So if you're not already here with me, take out your Bibles and let's turn to Exodus chapter 17. We're going to be studying the first seven verses today and we'll break them up into three main segments. The first segment is titled, Throwing a Tantrum. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 4. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. So just as we briefly mentioned in the intro, a few months into their journey out of Egypt, the Israelites leave the wilderness of sin and they camp at this place called Rephidim. Here in this dry and arid climate, dehydration can take place in a matter of hours rather than days. And without any water in sight, it doesn't take long for the people to start quarreling with Moses. And at first glance, this almost seems reasonable, right? Without any water, the people were in dire straits. And as people tend to do, they turn to their leader and start pointing the finger. However, when we consider the people's recent history and the miraculous ways God had sustained them thus far, along with a closer look at the text itself, we find this isn't at all a rational complaint lodged against their leader, but rather... This is a people who are acting like toddlers and throwing a tantrum, not just at Moses, but at God. So let's take all those things into account and see what's really going on here in these verses. First, we need to do a brief history lesson for the Israelites, and I do mean brief. Remember, they are only a few months removed from the Exodus. So let's start there. Within a few short months, they had witnessed God bringing the ten miraculous plagues down upon their Egyptian masters, parting the waters of the Red Sea, bringing them through the waters on dry ground, which did actually result in all the people praising and exalting God in Exodus 15. Unfortunately, that attitude of gratitude was short-lived because right in the same chapter as that song of praise The people complain against Moses and against God for the undrinkable, bitter waters that they found at Marah. God then responds by miraculously healing those waters and making them become sweet. Wow, 
So they probably want to sing that song of praise again, right? Wrong. (laughs) In the very next chapter, they get a little hungry. And like a child who is whining because they haven't had something to eat in an hour. And I wish I could do the voice that Pastor Rick does when he reads people complaining. I'll try my best. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. How'd I do? Pretty good. (laughs) Bunch of whiny babies we have here. But how does God respond? He graciously and miraculously rains down the manna from heaven to feed them. Okay, surely they have to see and trust that God will provide, right? I mean, if God performed all these miracles for them, even when they doubted and they grumbled against him, there could be nothing to fear. Well, as we read here in chapter 17, With bellies still full of that miraculous manna from heaven, tongues still lingering with the sweet taste of those waters at Marah, the people once again cry out to God, throwing a tantrum at the lack of water, which obviously was something that God could easily have rectified. Now let's look closer at the text itself. So take a look at verse 2 there. Or I'm sorry, where are we at? Well, the the English word quarreled there. The Hebrew word there is a little bit stronger than the English word we have quarreled, and it just doesn't quite do it justice. Um, As one scholar would point out, the Hebrew word translated as quarreled is a legal term describing the institution of a lawsuit. He goes on to note that this same term is often used by the prophets to describe lawsuits God will bring against his people for breaking the covenant. So this this is a really serious charge that the people are bringing against Moses. In fact, look at verse 4. It was much more than just a toddler's tantrum. This was the initiation of a legal proceeding which, without God's intervention, would have resulted in the conviction and stoning of Moses. Moses, the guy who had led them out of Egypt. But there's one more thing that we need to point out in these first four verses. Look at what Moses says at the end of verse 2. Why do you test the Lord? Because, you see, though Moses was God's representative... Though he was the much-needed mediator between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of the Israelites, it was, it was the Lord, right? It was Yahweh himself who had led the people into this waterless wilderness. Remember, Exodus 13 tells us that he went before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them in a pillar of fire by night. Do you see the underlying spiritual problem here? Despite all the miraculous ways in which the Lord has sustained them on their journey out of Egypt, at the first sign of physical danger, the people turn on God, put him on trial. They are ready to cast him aside and stone his chosen representative. Truly, spiritual dehydration is the real danger that is facing these people. So moving on to segment two, let's see how God responds to the charges being brought against him. Spare not the rod. Follow along as I read verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, 
taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. In order to better understand God's response to the charges being brought against him, we need to understand just a little bit more about God's justice. And to do that, let's take a look at some ways God commanded justice to be carried out among his people. In Deuteronomy 19.15, God says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So we have here God saying, you're going to bring a charge against someone. You need more than one witness. Well, check. We have that, right? It seems like the entire population of Israel is charging Moses and God with leading them to their deaths. Next, Deuteronomy 16 tells us that God commanded judges to be appointed over the people to decide their trials, and to judge them with a righteous judgment. Both of these principles are applied here in our case. When Moses is told to pass on before the people and take some of the elders of Israel with him, the elders who accompany Moses are to make up the witnesses in the trial, and Moses himself leads the way as judge. See, even though those initial charges were brought against Moses, and we might expect that the elders are leading Moses away as a charged criminal, that's not the language that is used. It says Moses was to go before them, to lead them, and he was to be holding in his hands his staff or his rod. Now that is very significant. The rod was a standard symbol of judicial authority, but even more so with this specific rod of Moses. This was the very same rod that the people had witnessed Moses using to strike the waters of Egypt and turn them into blood, an event which obviously showed God's judgment against the Egyptians. Therefore, the sight of Moses' rod, no doubt, represented nothing less than God's own judgment. So we have Moses going up before the people, holding in his hands the symbol of God's judgment, which shows that he was not going up as the accused, but rather as the judge of Israel. Who then was on trial? Well, it was the Lord, right? As we saw in our first segment, the people's charge was not really against Moses at all. It was against God. Remember what Moses said in verse 2, why do you test the Lord? So how is God responding to the charges being brought against him? By setting up his own trial and the way in which he himself demanded justice be carried out. He stands before a group of more than one witness with Moses presiding over the trial as the judge and wielding the rod of God's own judgment against him. But just as much as the rod represents God's judicial authority in this case, in the book of Proverbs, it often represents fatherly discipline. Proverbs 13.24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. In a case such as this, where the people of God are acting like children throwing a tantrum, we might expect God to respond with a disciplinary rod. As a matter of fact, he does. The difference, however, is who it is that receives the blows. It's not who we would expect. 
It's not Israel, the disobedient child who actually deserves this disciplinary rod, but it is, in fact, a child, more specifically, a son. So let's move on to the last segment and see just who it is who receives these blows in place of the guilty Israelites. Segment three, crushed for our iniquities. Follow along as I read verses six and seven. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? As the people watch Moses go before them with that group of elders of Israel and the rod of God's judgment in his hand, some of them at least had to be thinking, "Uh uh-oh, here it comes. That same wrath that we saw God bring down upon the Egyptians is now going to come down upon us. But it doesn't. Instead, God commands Moses to strike the rock. Well, what did this poor rock ever do to anyone? Remember, this is all in the setting of a criminal trial. And verse 6 says, Behold, I, I as in the Lord, will stand before you. Literally, I will stand before your face there at the rock of Horeb. So we have God standing upon the rock in the place of the accused and declaring himself guilty. Though he is innocent, He freely offers to bear the punishment for his people. And since Moses cannot physically strike into the glory of Yahweh, God instructs Moses to instead take that rod in his hands and strike the rock. You see, by standing upon the rock, God is equating the rock with himself. And more so, when we look elsewhere in scripture, we find several examples of the name rock being used for God. Moses himself In Deuteronomy 32, refers to God as the rock. In Psalm 78 and Psalm 95, the events of Exodus 17, which we are studying today, are retold. And in both of them, God is identified as the rock. Time would fail us to mention all the verses from David and Isaiah, Jeremiah, even Habakkuk, which refer to God as the rock. So since I think it's a pretty clear teaching in Scripture that rock is often used as a name for God himself, let's take a step back and let's see what's actually going on in these verses. Aside from the obvious surface-level reading, which shows that the people there were thirsty and God miraculously provided water for them out of this rock, which did indeed happen, you will remember that in the beginning, I said the real danger facing these people was not physical dehydration, but spiritual dehydration. What these people desperately needed was not just water to quench their thirst. They needed living water to douse the flames of their unbelief. For this to happen, they needed a substitute, one who would bear their punishment and provide for them this life-giving spiritual water. In segment two, we mentioned Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son. And we ask the question, who in our narrative receives the blows from Moses's rod? 
If God's disobedient child, Israel, didn't receive the blows, who did? Well, that may not have been the child Israel, but it was indeed God's child, a son. In fact, it was the son. What we have in this story involving a rock, a rod, and water from all those years ago is a foreshadowing of what would ultimately be fulfilled centuries later when Christ, the rock of our salvation, would stand in our place upon the rock at Calvary and be struck with the divine rod of God's judgment. As the Apostle Paul says, as he comments on this very story in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, All drank from the same spiritual drink, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. When we read these verses of Exodus 17 through this lens, it becomes easy to see the comparison between the events here at the rock of Horeb and those that would take place upon the rock at Golgotha. And let's walk through some of those similarities together. First, We have an angry crowd of God's supposed people bringing charges against God himself. Second, rather than striking them down on the spot with the divine rod of his judgment as they deserve, God himself takes their place. Third, just as Moses struck the rock to crush it, so too was Christ struck by the holy wrath of God. And as Isaiah says, he was crushed crushed for our iniquities. Finally, after being struck, the rock at Horeb brought forth life-giving water to a people who in no way deserved it, and so too did Jesus. After being struck by God in our stead, John says, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. From the wounded side of our Savior, from the split in the rock of ages, life-giving water was poured out upon an undeserving people who moments earlier stood to condemn him. As the prophet Zechariah says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Do you see the significance of this event? For years, I read over this passage thinking nothing more than, wow, what another glaring example of Israel's stubbornness. But it is so much more than that. This is like a living picture of the substitutionary atonement Christ provides for you and me. The fact that this is a picture of Christ's crucifixion It actually is the reason why Moses is banned from entering the promised land. So you remember that puzzling story we find in Numbers chapter 20, where the people, once again, are grumbling against God because they find themselves without water. And this time, God commands Moses to just speak to the rock rather than strike it. But instead, Moses disobeys, and in his anger, he strikes the rock twice. As a result, Moses bars I'm sorry, God bars Moses from entering the promised land. Now, I always read that, and I thought it just seemed like God was punishing his otherwise faithful servant Moses for not 
completely following his instructions. But when we read that narrative in light of what the rock represented, we see that in a sense, Moses was once again bringing that sacrificial knife down upon the already completed once for all sacrifice. As Edmund P. Clowney points out, he says, we do not wonder that Moses was judged severely for striking the rock a second time when he was told to speak to it. Only once at his appointed time does God bear the stroke of our doom. Seeing the link between our story and the banning of Moses from the promised land should show us that this is one of the most remarkable events in the entire Exodus narrative. And so much more, so much more could be said about this. But to close, I would like to discuss how we can apply this event from over 3,000 years ago to our own Christian walk today. You see, in chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, Jesus cries out to the people, If anyone thirsts, let them come to me and drink. The meaning was simple. If anyone believed in Christ, they should go to him, and he would provide them with living water, water that would bring them eternal life. But the thing that wasn't quite so simple And what most of the people who heard Jesus' proclamation probably failed to understand was just how that living water was to be drawn from Christ. You see, the people who heard those words of Jesus, as well as the Israelites who camped at Rephidim, as well as all of us in this room, all of us have something in common. We're all guilty And because God must uphold his holiness, something has to happen before he can invite us to drink freely from those wells of life-giving water. Someone would need to bear the punishment from God against all of our sin. As the rock of Horeb prefigured, And as Christ accomplished, Jesus himself, the only one who could bear that awesome weight, would stand in our place and receive the blows intended for us. In innocence, he would be declared guilty, and he would be crushed, split, pierced, so that the living water within him could be released for us sinners. Keeping that in mind, Here's what I want you to take away from today's sermon. Within the rod that struck the rock of ages, within that rod of God's judgment which struck Jesus in our place, was stored up every ounce of divine wrath intended for you and me. So for us, who have put our trust in Christ, who have planted our feet firmly upon that rock. The rod is now empty of all judicial judgment and becomes only the staff with which our shepherd lovingly guides us to salvation. As Bernard of Clairvaux captured this so well in his poem from more than 800 years ago, he says, What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine 
the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor, vouchsafe to me thy grace. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for the substitutionary atoning death of our Savior. Lord, without it, we, we would be nothing more than a people lost in the wilderness, crying out against you. Father, help us to recognize that in order for us to drink freely of the living water, Christ first had to be crushed and struck with the rod intended for us. Oh, Father, let us never forget his sacrifice or your mercy. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.